very excited about. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 4. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, church. You guys doing all right? Uh, If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to start a new teaching series called the Sermon on the Mount. I also want to give a quick shout out to one of our members named Arthur who designed this really cool sermon series. I think it's just awesome looking. So give a a shout out for Arthur. We have many talented people using their gifts in a lot of different ways. And you kind of can see some of the musicians up front or, you know, gifted public speakers like Sarah up here doing our call to worship or scripture reading. But the artists, they kind of like hide in the background. So uh, give it up for Arthur on that. And uh, I just want to say the Sermon on the Mount, this is a, a series that's going to take us three and a half months to go through. Uh, this is the most famous teaching of Jesus. And a lot of scholars would actually say it's maybe not one specific teaching, but really kind of a collection of his teachings, a a compilation of his teachings that's representative of what Jesus taught as he went from town to town. We we can see this because... um, First of all, they didn't have, like, recorders back then. You couldn't just set out, like, when you go to class, any of you guys, you know, when you were in college, you set out that audio recorder so you could go back and pretend like you listened to the lectures again later. Maybe some of you did, but usually it was just like, you know, set it and forget it kind of a thing. They didn't have recorders back then, and so what would happen is if Jesus would teach again and again, he would say the same kinds of things over and over again, and eventually you could kind of write these things down and collect it. And we also see that in other passages of Scripture, in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, even John's Gospel, there are sections of these same teachings elsewhere. And so I think it's best to understand the Sermon on the Mount as representative of Jesus' overall teaching. This is what he proclaimed as he went from town to town. And I also want you to think about it as, I'll use this language and I'll explain it more in a minute. I want you to see the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a manifesto of the kingdom of God. A manifesto of in which Jesus declares himself to be king and invites people to follow him in a new, upside-down, different sort of kingdom that's unlike the kingdoms of this earth. So as we dive in, I want to be able to teach with passion and with with truthfulness everything that uh, is here for us today. And I would just invite you to pray with me and pray for me as we dive in here together today. Lord, we thank you that though none of us were physically present 2,000 years ago to hear our Savior preach these words, God, you and your grace, by your Holy Spirit, through the apostles and prophets, you preserved these words for us. So even though we weren't there to hear with our physical ears, we can hear now today with our spiritual ears and hear the exact same truth that Holy Spirit you wanted to be preserved for us. And so we thank you for that. What a remarkable thought that is. God, I pray for myself that you'd help me to teach what is in line with the truth of not only this sermon, but your word overall. 
Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to receive and hands to act in line with the truth that you give to us today? We pray all these things in the name of our great King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I have great news for you. I don't actually, I just wanted you to feel that feeling, right? You know that feeling when somebody walks, I've got great news for you. My wife and I, we, we both are pretty, um, what's the word? Demonstrative, thank you. Uh, so it, it's a common experience where one of us will like walk into the room or walk in from, you know, like driving somewhere, walk into the house, like, oh my gosh. And it's like, okay, which one is this? Is this the good, oh my gosh? You know, like I just found a hundred dollars in my wallet that I forgot about. Or like the bad, oh my gosh, like my car is leaking antifreeze everywhere, right? Like which one is it? And there's always that little moment. It's like, I have great news to share. It's like, oh, I love that feeling. Don't you guys love that feeling? That feeling of good news. Isn't it ironic that so much of what we call news is not that. It's like, welcome to the news. Here's a hundred horrible things to think about. Like, it's just not good news. I have good news for you today. I have good news for you today. Jesus has good news for you today. When we talk about this, this good news, or, or we use the word gospel, the word gospel is just a, a kind of a, a Greek, an anglicized way of saying the Greek word of good news. How many of you know the gospel is good news? But what is this news? What is the news? In my time as a pastor and even just as a Christian, I have found that far too often followers of Jesus who say they believe the gospel, they've been saved by the gospel, don't know how to define the gospel. So I want to start today with a question. What is the gospel? Now, I hope and pray that many, if not most of us, know that there are some kind of substandard answers that, that, get, that masquerade as the gospel, right? For example, the message, God loves you, is not the gospel. And God loves you is good, but in and of itself, it is not the gospel because God loves you could mean he's floating off somewhere in outer space with warm and fuzzy feelings about you, but it doesn't actually do anything to change your life. There are also substandard answers of the gospel, particularly from what you might call the kind of the health and wealth sort of preaching community where they say that that God loves you and he came to make you healthy and he came to make you wealthy all the time. Now, I do believe that the gospel includes all sorts of benefits and blessings, but that in and of itself is not the gospel because it is Jesus himself who also said to expect many tribulations. So we know that those are kind of sub-answers for the gospel. Now, we get then kind of move into the, the more biblically astute sort of crowd. Oh, I know what the gospel is. The Apostle Paul tells us what the gospel is in places like uh, Ephesians 1. We have been justified. We've been made right with God by his grace through an act of faith. Friends, is that good news to you? That we've been, we've been made right with God because of his grace? That's awesome. Or, or others would come along and say, well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is this news that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. That's what he says, right? In accordance with the scriptures, he was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. I love 1 Corinthians 15. It is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, and I say that about a lot of chapters of the Bible, I know. But this time, I really mean it. 
I love 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel, Christ died and he, he didn't stay dead. The tomb is empty. And every Sunday we gather in commemoration of his empty tomb. Or others might say, well, Paul says what the gospel is in, in Romans chapter 10, that it's, it's you, you have to believe in your heart and you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. It's this personal response sort of thing. Personal belief, personal response. You have to say it out loud. You have to believe it in your heart. You have to sign up for team Jesus, the, the kind of personal salvation element. Now, friends, pop quiz. Is all of that good, right, true, and biblical? Not trying to trick you. It absolutely is. But there is an interesting problem that only answering from the letters of Paul creates. Paul wrote all of his letters after Jesus went to the cross, died, and rose again. But before all of that, the gospel writers, Matthew in particular, tells us that Jesus went around preaching the gospel. Matthew chapter 4, we just heard this in our scripture reading. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom and healing uh, every disease and sickness among the people. If you jump ahead a little bit in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus went out throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then Matthew 26, right before his his uh, uh, arrest and crucifixion, he's anointed with oil, and, and he says that, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, what this woman has done, will also be told in memory of her. So I want to ask this question again. What is the gospel? And, and maybe more specifically, if Jesus has not yet died and risen again, what is the gospel that he's proclaiming? What's the gospel he's proclaiming? Now, Maybe you picked up on it in these verses I was reading. Matthew tells us what the gospel is. I read a couple of books a few years ago. Um, I think back in like early 2012, I read two books back to back. One of the books was called uh, uh, The Explicit Gospel. It's by a, a preacher named Matt Chandler. And the other book that I read uh, was called The King Jesus Gospel by a theologian named Scott McKnight. And both of these books helped me really kind of understand that there are kind of two different angles that we can look at the gospel. We can look at the gospel from kind of this personal angle, or we can look at it from a big picture, cosmic, if I can use that language, cosmos, worldwide angle. Matt Chandler, in his book, he calls it the gospel in the air and the gospel on the ground. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife and I, we flew to Florida for a, a retreat with other pastors and wives from the Harbor Network that we're a part of. And as we're flying back in, it was a sunny day. We're, we're flying over Seattle. And let me tell you what, like it is just a beautiful city to see from the air. The water, the mountains, the trees, the, the, the buildings. Somewhere around that same time, maybe, I don't remember if it was the week before or the week after, uh, my youngest daughter had a day off of school. And so I took the day off and we went to a Mariner's Day game. And just in case you were wondering, yes, they lost. Uh, 
It was, it was the game, a day game that they played the first time that they got no hit this season. Not the second time, and who knows, there might be a third and fourth coming later on this season because they don't know how to hold their bats the right way. But we're walking through the city and we're experiencing the smells of, you know, the hot dog vendors and we're seeing the buildings from the bottom and we're experiencing the city of Seattle. I experienced the city of Seattle from a plane and from the street level within just a few short days of each other. And Chandler says the gospel is kind of like that. There's a personal angle to the gospel where we talk about you are a sinner. You need to be forgiven. You have emptiness inside. Christ came to redeem you and to forgive you and to give you eternal life. And that's all good and right and true. But this gospel in the air, what Scott McKnight calls this gospel of the kingdom, is a bigger picture sort of gospel. It's this idea that God created humanity and, 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 and we're, we're looking from this bigger picture that, that, that he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he's a rightful ruler over all things and he's restoring all things unto himself. And what I would say is the gospel that Jesus is preaching is this kingdom gospel. Did you notice how many times I said he went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Here's here's my best attempt at summarizing what Jesus preached. It's this. God's kingdom has come and Jesus is the king. That is the gospel that Jesus is preaching. And it's incredibly important that we know this for a couple of reasons. First of all, if we do not understand the framework of the King Jesus gospel in the air, we're going to have a really hard time understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of abstracted principles that Jesus thought, hey, this would just be a good idea for me to teach people. No, they're connected to this idea of living as citizens of the kingdom. But secondly, I would, I would just even argue with you or, or contend for this idea that in the United States of America— We are a highly individualistic society. We have been highly individualistic. And so the gospel on the ground, the personal gospel, has really become the primary way that Christians talk about the gospel. You are a sinner. You need salvation. You can have eternal life. But more and more, our culture has really shifted and is is turning a corner. Our, Our culture now needs a kingdom gospel more than ever before. And I'll explain that more in just a little bit when we talk about evangelism. But, but I just want you to understand, we, we believe the gospel on the ground, the personal gospel. It is good, right, true, and biblical. But far too often, we as American Christians are missing this King Jesus gospel in the air. And so in order for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I want to I walk through five ways that the gospel of the kingdom reframes things for us. And the first one is this. A gospel of the kingdom helps us reframe the story. Helps us reframe the story that we are living in. When Matthew begins his gospel, his written account of the life of Jesus Christ, he says this. He says, it's an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, when we talk about a personal gospel, we often start with what? You and me. Individuals. But that is not what Matthew does. When Matthew wants to talk about Jesus, he says, we're going to go all the way back to David and Abraham. 
And so we're reminded that the gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount is part of a much bigger story. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not begin with you. It actually begins when all of mankind was created, male and female, bearing the image of God. See, God is depicted in the earliest pages of the story of Genesis as a royal ruling king. He is the king over all things. You know how we know that? Because he says it and it happens. That's king stuff. Kings go, go get my horse. And it just happens. They say things and it happens. God said, let there be light. Let there be dry land. Let there be plants and animals. And then he creates the man and the woman in his image and likeness. That is also ancient Near Eastern royal language. And mankind was created to rule and to reign as stewards under the kingly governance of God himself. But what did Adam and Eve do? They listened to the voice of the deceiver. They, they followed the path of the rebel and they said, thank you, God, but we would like to rule and reign on our own terms. And what is the whole story of human history ever since that day but the story of, of broken kingdoms, fallen kingdoms, trying to operate outside of God's wise rule? But God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He, he pulled this one man out, this one man and says, I'm gonna create a family from your descendants, and, and one of your descendants is going to be the king. And then David shows up, and he's, he's close, but God says, no, it's, it's, it's not you. You're still fallen and, and, and feeble and broken, but, but you'll always have one of your descendants to rule over the God's people of Israel. And this blessing is going to be for the people of Israel and then for all the nations of the world. The Sermon on the Mount is not about you and me. It's about God creating a kingdom and a family who is going to live a certain way because of the promises of God. And see, Matthew, as he writes this gospel, as he writes his account of the life of Jesus, he actually goes out of his way, not just here in in chapter 1, verse 1, but really all throughout his gospel to try to highlight for us, hey, this is connected to the story of Israel. This is connected to the story of, of people like Moses. Matthew goes out of his way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us think, oh yeah, I should be thinking Moses stuff. For example, the word genealogy, when we just read that in that verse, the word genealogy is literally in the Greek Genesis. When you think of Genesis, who are you supposed to think of? You can say it. Don't be scared. Moses. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. When, when Matthew tells of Jesus' birth narrative, he's endangered at his very birth. His parents have to hide and, and flee in, in Egypt. Who are we supposed to think of with that? Moses. It's going to be the answer for the next several questions. I'm just telling you ahead of time. Jesus, it says he goes up on a mountain to proclaim truth from God. Truth coming from a mountain. Truth, God's truth coming from a mountain. Who are we supposed to think of? Thank you. Did somebody say, David, I'm going to smack you. Who did it? (laughs) Jesus goes up on the mountain and his face is literally shining with God's glory after he was hanging out with, oh yeah, who? Moses and Elijah. When Moses comes down off the mountain, he is literally shining with the glory of God. By the way, maybe one of my favorite parts is that Matthew crafts his work, his gospel, with a five-fold literary structure. 
There are five major speeches from Jesus, five major sections of teaching. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's a section when he commissions the, commissions the disciples. In the middle is a bunch of parables. There's a life in the church section. And then lastly, what's called the Olivet Discourse, this, this teaching on the Mount of Olives. Hmm, five major written works. Five, five Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Are you guys tracking with me? It's Moses. So as we read Matthew's gospel, we're supposed to see this is, this is connected to something a lot bigger. Jesus is, is the, the prophet, the ultimate prophet that Moses said would come. Matthew does the same thing with David, right? This, this whole genealogy is a royal birth announcement. When, when you write, you don't write something like this about commoners. You write, this is the account of the genealogy of the king. He wants us to think king sort of thoughts. And in fact, Matthew intentionally says he's the son of David, but then he uses this number. Name, he uses David's name and David's number to draw our attention to Jesus being the new king, the new David. And, and the numbers thing, this numbers in the Bible can get really weird. And you can find weird things on the internet about numbers and other things. You can find, like, there's weird stuff on the internet about numbers. But there is something to the idea that uh, in, in the Hebrew language, the letters have numerical values, and the number for David is 14. And when Matthew crafts this genealogy, what does it say? 14 generations until this, 14 generations until the exile, 14 generations. He's, he's literally just screaming David at us using these numbers. There's a constant focus on kingdom throughout Matthew's gospel. 55 times he uses the word kingdom. Ten of the parables of Jesus start with the phrase, the kingdom of God is like, and then Jesus goes on to tell us what the kingdom looks like. And then lastly, Matthew sets up Jesus' crucifixion as an enthronement. Purple clothes, crown of thorns, lifted up a sign that says the king of the Jews. We're supposed to be thinking when, when Jesus is doing all of his stuff, this is the king, and he's inaugurating a kingdom. Friends, I, I just say all that to you to remember. We want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, and we can't truly do that if we don't think kingdom gospel. If we only think personal gospel, we're going to miss out on the richness of the meaning. Kingdom gospel reframes the story. Kingdom gospel also reframes the need. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach, Repent! Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. That word means to change and, and to turn and to, to do something different. Now, what is our greatest need? What is our greatest need? Again, in certain circles, the greatest need would be we need health and wealth. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. In other circles, you might say our greatest need are like emotional needs. You have this God-shaped hole in your heart, and Jesus came to, to, to fill you up with that. Now, yeah, I think that's true. How many of you are grateful that Jesus has entered into your life and rearranged your, like, heart and mind and emotions? Anyone? Like, do you know, like, do you know how, like, awful I would be without Jesus? Don't, don't amen, Aaron Lynn. Like, she knows how awful I am right now, but, like, could you imagine me without Jesus? Like, my mind and my heart, my emotions. Like, yes, Jesus does do all of that kind of internal, personal stuff. But what Jesus is saying here is, 
you need to repent because the king is on his way. The king is here. Humanity has not lived up to its created purpose. We have not ruled and reigned under the authority of King Jesus. We have chosen to rule and reign. Thank you, God. I know how, how I want to do it, how best to go. The kingdom is coming. It's, kind of some, it's something kind of like, hey, we got left in charge and we've really messed it up, but the boss is coming back. Anybody ever had that? I had that one time in fourth grade. In fourth grade, the teacher left me in charge. It was a very terrible decision to leave me in charge. She had to go make copies down in the office, and I was left in charge. And I won't tell the whole story, but it involved a lot of fourth graders cutting their hair with scissors and putting it into the hands of my friend Steve. And we could hear the teacher walking, and I was like, oh no, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Repent, the kingdom of the fourth grade teacher is at hand. It's a terrible story. <laughs> when, when we hear this message of repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near, it, it should make us think, like, what were we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to live as, as humankind? It reframes the need. Again, I'm not saying that those personal needs aren't important. Yes, Jesus saves us into a family where we can take care of each other's practical needs. Yes, Jesus saves us from the inside out and rearranges our mental and emotional state. But ultimately, this is about how we as humanity were commissioned to live and to rule over his creation. Number three, a gospel of the kingdom reframes the hope. It reframes the hope. We have a bigger hope than just a personal gospel can afford us. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells his disciples, all of his hearers, in the Sermon on the Mount, what's called the Lord's Prayer, part of what he tells us to pray is, your kingdom come, may your kingdom come here, and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. See, friends, the gospel, the personal gospel is you are forgiven of your sins and you receive eternal life. That is great. But on its own, that can turn into escapism. Cool, I've got eternal life. I've got my fire insurance. I've got my get out of hell card. I don't have to be involved and do anything. I can just kind of hide out. No, what Jesus says is you've been saved. You've been given eternal life. And my kingdom is going to break in on the earth just like it is in heaven. See, in, in, in God's sphere, if I can use that language, in God's realm where he rules and reigns from in heaven, everything is exactly how God wants it to be. But in our realm here on earth, things are broken. Can I get an amen from anybody? Things are broken. But in God's realm, there is no more cancer. There is no more Alzheimer's. There will be no divorces. There will be no racism. There will be no injustice from leaders. And God says, my kingdom is breaking into the earth. And I'm going to use the citizens of my kingdom to be a part of that. That's some good news. And the good news of the kingdom is that one day, Christ Jesus will return 
and the fullness of his kingdom will be brought here on earth, that heaven and earth will be one. This is why the apostle Paul says that the gospel of Jesus is he's reconciling all things unto himself. This is why the apostle John writes that I saw a city descending from heaven where it's united and heaven and earth are one together forever. The gospel is not just you get to go to heaven when you die. The gospel is he's making all things new. This is the good news of the hope of the gospel of the kingdom. It doesn't nullify any of that other stuff. That other stuff is good and true and right and biblical. It's just incomplete on its own. Anybody want God's kingdom to come? Man, I got, I got a text from a member late last night that an elderly mother passed away. And praise God, she knows Jesus and we know that, that her hope is secure. But I'm just sick of death. I'm sick of it. I want Jesus to return. I want to see this this hope, this kingdom hope come to fruition. I'm sick of, I'm sick of divorce. Sick of marriages being broken. I want Jesus, I'm sick of fighting over politics and masks and everything else. I want Jesus' peace to rule and reign. How's it going to happen? How, how, is, how is this kingdom breaking into the earth? Through his citizens of this kingdom who have been redeemed. And the good news is, by the way, this hope, it, it comes from a place of a gospel of grace. In Matthew 9, we read it from Mark's gospel in our confession, but in Matthew 9, Jesus said, it's not the well who need a doctor, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This, this hope of the kingdom, how do I get in on this? I want his kingdom to come. He says, you got to admit that you're sick. You got to admit that you were part of the problem. Telegraph where we're going next week when we get to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all about being poor in spirit and, and, and brokenhearted. And, and I'm just, I issued you the challenge last week. Let's, let's, let's memorize the Beatitudes together because that is the foundation of what it means to get in on this kingdom. I am poor in spirit. Lord, I'm hopeless without you. I'm the sick. I need the doctor. And when we come to Jesus with that posture, he says, welcome into my kingdom. I'm going to rearrange you. I'm going to rearrange your life. I'm going to rearrange your priorities. And I'm going to use you to help bring my kingdom here on the earth like it is in heaven until that day when Jesus himself returns and heaven crashes into earth. And that's going to be a good day. Number four, and I'll be brief on this one. It reframes our morality and it reframes our ethics. Jesus himself says here in Matthew 5, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Question, do you think Jesus thinks this is important? His teachings? Yeah, it's pretty important. And we will spend the vast majority of our time as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, learning what it means to live out kingdom-style lives. I just simply want to say this. There's a lot of people out there telling you a lot of things about how to live your life. Financial advice, parenting advice, real estate advice, political advice, 
marriage and, and, and sexuality advice. And, and some of it's good and some of it's bad and how you sort through all of this. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount is our constitution. It's our, it's, it's the manifesto of the kingdom of God. It's Jesus saying, this is what it looks like to live as a part of my kingdom. So if you have a podcaster or an author or a blogger that you like to listen to, excellent, wonderful, great. This is the most important thing that you can frame your life around. The actions, the activities, the choices. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, this sermon, this collection of teachings, is Jesus saying, this is what it looks like. This is what I'm calling you to. And then lastly, number five, a gospel of the kingdom reframes our evangelism. I think we're familiar, most of us, with Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus gives his disciples the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's great. I really like Matthew 10, 7, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples earlier. He says, as you go, here's what you're going to proclaim. Here's your preaching. Here's your message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So he commissions his disciples to go preach a kingdom gospel. I had a couple of conversations with my parents. My parents are older than me. It's a dumb sentence. I wish I could take it back. But they're of a previous generation. And one of the things we've talked about how is, you know, for their generation, kind of the, the feel-good generation, right? If, if it feels good, do it. Kind of coming out of the, you know, in the 60s and the, the whole kind of cultural swing to just do what your feelings tell you to do. And I think that a lot of the preaching of the gospel in their generation revolved around how Jesus makes you feel better. And I'm not, I'm not trying to throw stones at that. I think there's something very good and very relevant about that, right? Those of you who are maybe of an older generation, you, you kind of can resonate with this, this message. A lot of times you hear it at evangelistic services or, or, or sermons would talk about how, you know, you have this emptiness inside of you and, and, and God comes in and he, he fills you up. He gives your life meaning. He gives your life purpose. I'm not disagreeing with any of that. But it's been interesting to watch and talking about this with my parents about how culture is, has changed quite a bit. And I don't know if you know this. I mean, I think we're still very feelings-driven, but there is a lot more in, in my generation and even younger of demand for justice and righteousness in the public square. Not necessarily biblical justice and righteousness, but just right living and justice and righteousness. It's been a couple months now but in one of the sermons in the book of Acts, I read an article for you guys from a, a non-Christian uh, sociologist who argues that politics has now replaced religion in American public life. Politics has become the most popular thing. And it's interesting how this demand for like justice and this demand for righteousness has come I think in large part because so many of our public leaders in the public, uh, public sector have just failed us miserably. I, I remember, I, I think it was in the 2016 election, maybe it was even more recently, somebody in a, with a bumper sticker, you know, a political-looking bumper sticker, and it just says, any functional adult, 2016. It's like, ha-ha, chuckle, but like, that's saying something. That's betraying a deep cynicism. 
That's betraying a, 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 a heart and desire to be led towards something that promotes common good. I also saw, you want to talk cynicism, I also saw a yard sign one time that just said, Giant Meteor 2016, blow it all up. Whoa, all right. We're done. No, no hope for the future. Just blow it all up. In the last couple of weeks, um, had people send messages or say things to myself and other elders in our church that they're moving on from Sound City Bible Church or disappointed with Sound City Bible Church because too conservative, too progressive. I have had people come up to me. I'm just going to, this is a personal little disclosure here. People come up to me often and will want to engage in politics or to talk and with an assumption that I agree with whatever they're saying. And I've had it, it's quite hilarious, people on both the right and both the left. And you know, this is a little bit of a betrayal into my personality type. I'll just fight with both of them, okay? (laughs) So there's a sinful antagonistic part of me, but there's the, hopefully the, the good and right part of me is this. We live in a society that has idolized politics. And even for many of you, Bible-believing, church-attending, gospel-believing Christians, politics is an idol in your heart. And how can we go out into the world proclaiming a gospel of the kingdom when we're fighting with one another over earthly kingdoms, earthly kings that are going to go away. I don't know if you know this. Every empire in human history lasts for a period of time and then like dust, it blows away. I'm grateful for the United States of America, even with all of our flaws. I'm thankful that we have the rights and freedoms and privileges that we have. But unless all of a sudden something happens that's never happened in the course of human history before, America will go away. And when we lose our minds about something that a former or current president said, about something that passed from the Supreme Court, some law that passed in state senate. When we lose our minds about this, we're so agitated and so angry and so, how could you? You have betrayed your true kingdom. You've given an insight into what really sits on the throne of your own heart. Is it King Jesus? Because last time I checked, he said that his kingdom would never pass away. The Constitution of the United States of America will someday be null and void, but his word stands forever. The decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States of America may be good, may be bad. They will pass away. He is the righteous and just judge whose rulings stand forever. And yes, he is the king and he will never be up for re-election. And I need you to hear this, church. I love you, but I have concern 
when the level of political discourse means that you will separate from a brother and sister in Christ over political differences when we are going to be in eternity forever together, we ought to start figuring out how to get along right now so that we can go out and proclaim Christ Jesus as king. Because there's a lot of people who are lost and dying and they put their hope in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms and they are destined for judgment if we don't go out and get the news to them that there's a new king, his name is Jesus, his kingdom will never pass away. And meanwhile, we're fighting about things that really in this grand scheme of things are not as important as this message of the gospel. Now, please hear me. I am not saying bury your head in the sand. I am not saying don't have political opinions. In fact, I love the fact that Sound City is a little bit more politically diverse than a lot of churches. It'd be a whole heck of a lot easier to lead a church where everyone thought the exact same way. So if you could work on that, that'd be great. I'm just kidding. Don't. I'm glad that we have some of those things where we can see things from different perspectives. But doggone it, we have got to get Jesus bigger in our eyes. The kingdom of God bigger in our eyes. And I love you and I'm pleading with you. This is about seeing people rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. As you go, proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And I argue that our generation needs to know that Jesus is the king. And all the disappointment that they're feeling over earthly politics and political institutions and all of that, if Jesus is really in charge, it's gonna be okay. Even when it's not. If the people of God lived through Egypt and Babylon and Rome, we're going to be okay. So we're going we're gonna to dive in. Some of you are already rethinking this. Are we really going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for a few months? Yes, we are. Sermon on the Mount is just breathtaking. The news is so good. The vision is so compelling. The beauty of, like, if you could read the Sermon on the Mount and actually imagine, like, what if we actually lived like this? Oh, my goodness. It's beautiful. It's comprehensive. It, t- it touches on everything. Jesus is going to mess with every single one of you and with me because this sermon touches on everything in our lives. And it is challenging. Oh boy, is the Sermon on the Mount challenging. In fact, it's impossible to do on your own, which is why we need his grace. Some of you here today listening, whether it's online or in person, you have never surrendered and given allegiance to Jesus as king. And today, the invitation is the kingdom of God has come and is coming. Will you surrender to this King Jesus? For those of you who have surrendered, this is an opportunity to say, I need to realign, I need to reorient everything in my life around this kingdom manifesto? Will you let this shepherd king, this prophet like Moses and this shepherd king like David, will you let him show you how he wants you to live your life? 
Not what the person on the radio or on cable TV or on the blog said to live your life, but how Jesus says to live your life. And will you go out and tell the world that there's a new king and his kingdom will never pass away? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the the bracing challenge and the comforting call that is the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord, even now as we come to the table, as we're invited to a royal meal with the King of Kings seated at the head of the table, I ask and I pray now that you would help us to be mindful that we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and we eat this meal in anticipation of the day when we will eat it with you in its full when, Lord Jesus, you return to fully establish your kingdom. And until that day, we pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Change us and shape us to live as citizens of the kingdom. Amen.